Hello, everyone, and welcome to Strange Sound. I'm Joe. Glad to have you with me once again this week. Thank you for tuning in or logging in or downloading or listening with your earbuds or whatever you're doing to hear this now. Thank you for listening. Much appreciated. Always glad to have someone hearing the sound of my voice. Someone besides me. Glad to have you with me. Um... Okay, well, I'm going to begin with my standard disclaimer. Views expressed on Strange Sound are my own. They represent neither the views of my uh, family members or my friends or my neighbors or my uh, um, co-workers or my employer or anyone associated with me on social media or anyone uh, who passes me on the street and says hello to me or anyone who... I don't know, sends me bills from my various creditors. Um, no one's opinion is represented here other than my own. Uh, if I do quote other people's either ideas or writings or um, ruminations, let's say, uh, I try to give credit to whoever credit is due to. Um, and if I don't, please do remind me. Get in touch with me. I'll tell you how to do that at the end of the show. In any case, here we are. Uh, today's date, I am recording this on August 7th. Uh, yesterday was Hiroshima Day. Uh, the I believe the 76th anniversary of Hiroshima. And Nagasaki Day is coming right up. And... This is also happens to be, I believe it's the anniversary of my, it's close to the anniversary of my father's discharge from the army in 1946, uh, a, a year into the occupation of, uh, a little more than a year into the occupation of Europe, he was discharged and uh, came home, obviously. Uh, he was, uh, he was in the army of occupation, um, for that year after the end of the war, um, had some tales to tell about it, which I may or may not share. Uh, they were, um, not, not happy tales. Uh, that's about all I'm going to say about that right now. Uh, he, he actually saw the, um, aftermath of one of the concentration camps, uh, that was around where he was stationed in Germany. Um, and, uh, it was, it affected him for the rest of his life. Um, he, it definitely changed his point of view. Uh, my dad was, um, deeply affected by what happened to him in, in Europe. And, uh, he, he sort of contained it very well. Uh, like a lot of people of his generation, he just kind of came back home and went to work and, and just did stuff and didn't really talk about it very much until very late in his life. But in any case, um, that's not what I'm here to talk about today. Uh, what I'm here to talk about is my latest blog post, which you can see at big-green.net. If you follow the blog link, um, it will take you to yet another link that will point to our blog. Um, the first post you'll see likely will be something very silly. And then the second post you'll see is my, uh, my latest political rant what I call on this show my furious rants. 
Um, this week is entitled Making the Case for Postal Banking. And um, you can find this, once again, at big-green.net. Follow the blog tab and click through. It should be the first in the um, political rants category, depending on when you hear this and when you listen to it. Um, and because uh, I do, I typically do one post a week under political rants. And this one, once again, dated August 6th, making the case for postal banking. And it goes something like this. The end of the eviction moratorium this past week and the response by the squad says a lot about the limitations of the administrative state. Mass evictions should not be a problem. The large COVID relief package passed last year included something like $40 billion in rental assistance distributed to the states. As of now, only about $3 billion has been allocated to the people who need the help. That's maybe 8%. What the fuck? Why is it that when we go through the ridiculously baroque process of applying federal funds to a problem like this, the money often doesn't get spent? David Dayan talked about this a bit on the majority report on, on this past Monday. Put simply, after decades of neoliberal attack on the administrative state, the means of getting government aid to people are sclerotic and dysfunctional. There's a reason why we have such an atomized, ineffective system for helping poor and working people. Ordinary people don't have armies of lobbyists at their disposal. The eviction moratorium is a good illustration of this. The 7 to 11 million people who were at risk of homelessness as a result of the moratorium's end are underrepresented. Their landlords, by and large, are anything but. The difference this time around was that a formerly unhoused person became a member of, of the House of Representatives. Cori Bush, along with some of her allies, became, in effect, lobbyists for renters. And amazingly, they were successful. Though I, I know the thought of it is intensely painful to many armchair leftists on Twitter, we should celebrate this small victory, because it is significant. In so doing, however, we must bear in mind that money still talks very very loudly. What do we do about a system that easily transfers billions to corporate bankers but can't seem to manage rent relief for, for people in trouble? While we need some method for delivering direct payments to Americans in a reliable, low-friction way, in my humble opinion, that method, or I should say one such method for doing so, is setting up postal banking. As many of you may know, postal banking is not a new idea. In fact, the Postal Service offered banking services back when I was a little shaver. The idea I prefer is one that is a bit broader than the old version. My preferred version is this. Every American, and I mean every one, gets a postal banking account. Just like getting a social security number, they open an account for you when you were born, and you have it all your life. It would be a free, interest-bearing account that allows for savings, electronic transfers, etc., etc. My personal preference would be that the federal government deposits some amount, say 50 bucks, as a little birthday gift for every newborn. But whether or not that comes to pass, your postal bank account would serve as a deposit account for any federal benefit payments. Now, if you prefer to use a private bank account, you can always transfer your funds to that bank, even set up auto transfers. But no matter what, that account would still be there for you. I think this is an idea whose time has come. 
It would make the transfer of that $40 billion in rental assistance dead simple. It would give poor and working people access to banking services. It would, in short, make an enormous difference and help float our beloved postal service as well. Let's put it in the reconciliation package, people. Call your reps. Love you. Joe. <laughs> That's my furious rant. Um, and again, you can see it at bigdayscreen.net. What else to say about this? Well, I, I actually think postal banking would, would be helpful. It's not necessarily the only way to, to um, approach this problem, this ongoing problem that we have. And uh, I think it's probably worth saying that, uh, and I don't want to keep referring to this necessarily, but David Dayan um, described this pretty well on Majority Report uh, last week. I would look at um, American Prospect um, and and look at some of his recent writing on this. Uh, really what we're looking at now, um, part of the problem um, in the distribution of rental assistance or any other kind of assistance that reaches the level of individuals and, and families and people in need um, is dependent on all these state-based mechanisms like um, the unemployment system, which is distributed across states and is subject to different state laws um, and state regulations. Um, the rental assistance program is being distributed through God knows how many different systems. There's there's plenty of requirements. It isn't like after you know more than 40 years of really heavy-duty neoliberal transformation and attack against the administrative state, um, our system for delivering services and resources to individuals is is so atomized and so atrophied as i as i mentioned in the blog post it's it's like 50 different dysfunctional systems all at the state level it's kind of like like the way um medicaid is set up i mean it's basically 50 medicaid systems it's funded largely by uh, the federal government. They parcel out the funding, but uh, it's also participated in by the, by, by the individual states. And, you know, they set requirements within certain limits. And it's the same thing with unemployment. Um, it's just all these old systems sometimes reliant on on really old technology um it, it's just it's just we're not really in a position in a in a situation like this to be able to push aid out to people in an efficient and and really adequately distributive way in a way that reaches everybody because <laughs> Even the child tax credit, if you think about it, it's like unless you're someone who makes enough money to pay taxes regularly and you have direct deposits set up um, for your tax return um, and you use that every year, that's how that's the simplest way to get your refund or your, your tax credit um, from the federal government. Otherwise, they're sending you checks. And 
you know, it's it, it gets more and more it gets more and more complicated um, the less resources you have. It, it just it seems to me like postal banking may be an answer to this, um, or some system that's similar to that. But postal banking just seems like the the most obvious answer to me because you know if a decision is made you know at the federal level to help homeowners to help um families with dependent children to help the unemployed um if you can identify who these people are <laughs> if you can def- identify the people who are receiving the aid or if it's a program that is um more generally redistributive um, it's more of a universal program, then you're just basically pushing it out to everybody. And if everybody has the same account at some level, doesn't mean they have to use it. Again, you don't have to bank with your postal banking account, but everybody has one. That's the idea. To me, that's the idea, is to make it universal. And, you know, it's, it's something that's just part of your portfolio as an American citizen, right? I mean, we can talk about non-citizens as well, but it's like, just for the sake of conversation, let's say that's just part of your birthright as an American citizen. You get this account, and this account entails a number of different services, um, a number of different financial services, basic financial services that, that that are there to assist you (laughs) <laughs> so that you can, you know, you can have a reasonable life. It's something that is an expansion of a program that we had before. Postal banking was more voluntary, right? And I'm not saying it's obligatory. You don't have to use it. You can ignore it if you want. It's up to you. You know, you don't have to use it, but it's like everyone has that account. And, you know, it's that's part of how that, could work better than 50 different um, broken distributive systems related to every individual aspect of, you know, um, support for rental assistance or unemployment or, you know, whatever. Um, And it's, (laughs) it, it cuts against the neoliberal model that we've been living under for ages. Um, so it's, it seems a little counterintuitive to some people, but I think for the upcoming generation, I don't think this is something that's, that would be considered outrageous. Um, and it certainly doesn't seem outrageous to me. I mean, there's a, there's, I'm sure there's a minority of people in my age group that think that this, something like this would be a good idea. Maybe it's more than a small minority. Maybe it's even a majority. I don't know. Um, but I can I can say with some confidence that people who are considerably younger than me are probably much more congenial to that idea than people my age. It's a little hard to say. <laughs> but I mean, look at the history of what we've done as far as our response to crises over the past, particularly over the past 15 years. I mean, back after the 2007-2008 financial crisis, the uh, collapse of the housing, um, of the of the mortgage system, um, 
<laughs> the financial system falling apart. Uh, we had TARP. We had bailing out the banks, um, rescuing mortgages from the bank side rather from the rather than from the actual um, mortgage holder side. <laughs> the person who had the you know the homeowner um, essentially didn't get bailed out. <laughs> there was a, a, a program that affected to do that, but actually really put it in the hands of bankers and left it to their discretion. And most people didn't benefit from that program. The results of that were palpable. Once again, I would say, go back to David Dayen, um, read his chain of title, his book chain of title. Um, that gives you a very kind of a personalized idea of, of what the effect of that was. And even more recently, um, you know, obviously our response to that was Occupy Wall Street and that movement and the uh, Bernie Sanders campaign and everything that sort of fell in after that. Um, but even more recently than that, with the first tranche of COVID relief in the spring of 2020. Um, you notice how quickly they moved to bail out banks and corporations. <laughs> it was actually the first piece of relief that they came up with um, when the when the economy was beginning to shut down. And I, you know, a lot of people have reported on this. They provided something like $400 billion as a seed fund um, from which they made available up to 10 times that amount in basically free money to be made available via the banks to major corporations. So, you know, banks were able to take this money from the Fed and, you know, issue, issue loans and they would pay zero interest on them. It's free money. It was the one thing that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans wanted that they got right away. And that's why they weren't really interested in any COVID aid after that, because they got all that they wanted in the first package. They didn't need any of the subsequent packages. The subsequent packages mostly um, concentrated on individuals. You know, they weren't really interested in helping individuals. They were interested in helping their constituency, which is huge donors and financial service corporations. That's what they did. And there's a very efficient way of handling that kind of aid because our system is set up for it. It's what our system is set up to do. Our system is not set up to help individuals or to help families, to help poor people, to help working people. It's just not set up for that anymore. It never was. I mean, if you go back in our history, 50, 60, 70 years, we were beginning to set up a social welfare system, in a sense, um, similar to what Europe had. And if it had continued to develop along the lines that it had begun, we would have had something similar to what the Europeans have, which is an ability to send out aid to people when it's needed, in a very in a relatively efficient fashion, as well as a is a full spectrum of universal programs that allows people to, you know, get medical care when they need it without having to think about it. 
without having to think about the cost. You just walk into a medical provider and you get the care you need. And, and you, you're basically just concentrating on what it takes to make you well. That's all you care about. That's all they care about. And that's the way it ought to be. Right? We didn't get that. We didn't get a, a robust social safety system. A robust public safety system. In the sense that, you know, people need housing. They get housing. People need medical care. They get medical care. People need food. They get food. People need education. They get education. They need clean water. They get clean water. All the essentials. I mean, that kind of program, that kind of approach to governing was tarred, you know, socialism. And is roundly criticized by the likes of, you know, Mitt Romney 2012, right? <laughs> About the 47%, you know, who expect free health care, free housing, you name it, you know. <laughs> he had a long list. They don't like the idea of universal programs that help individuals, that help ordinary people. They do not like that. That's why they've always hated Social Security and they've been trying to skewer it for 75 years. That's why they've always hated Medicare. But because it's popular, they tiptoe around it. But they want to privatize that sucker too. They've made some inroads on that. There's no question about it. That's why Barack Obama didn't even try to expand Medicare and make it available to to a broader range of people, if not make it universal. No, he came up with a system that would extend the corporate system, that would extend the private system that we have and make it more stable and make it possible for private companies, the health insurers, to continue their their money-making enterprise, essentially. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I mean, the only really good thing about the ACA was the patient bill of rights portion of it that... You know, it didn't make things more affordable for people, but it did define what a what a um, health insurance policy is. And the Republicans have been trying to pull that apart ever since it was established. But again, like Medicare, it's not it's not as popular as Medicare, but like Medicare, it has become popular because people have gotten used to having it. It's something that we provide to people as flawed and as Rube Goldbergish as it is, and it, it does have that too has its own state-based components to it. The Medicaid expansion, which is the most positive part of it in terms of coverage, the Medicaid expansion is a state-based program funded by the federal government, and states have the option, and many have opted out of accepting it. I mean, thanks to the Supreme Court decision of a number of years ago. The federal government cannot pressure them to accept the expansion aid, even though they're paying for, even though the feds are paying for 95 to 100% of the cost over the over a course of years. Part of it is a flaw in the system, right? The Obama administration was going to penalize the states by withholding Medicaid funding if they didn't do the expansion. Um, they were going to penalize them in some fashion. Now that, I I didn't agree with that tactic myself. 
but it's partly it's just because of the way the ACA is written, and that was really the only leverage they had. <laughs> but it's just kind of a stupid way of approaching universal care, in my opinion. I mean, you're basically holding um, the core Medicaid recipients hostage. <laughs> the actual, you know, deeply impoverished people who are on Medicaid to begin with, without the expansion, you're holding their coverage hostage in some sense to the willingness of their Republican governors and the Republican legislatures to expand Medicaid to include more people, which they should do, but we shouldn't be asking them to do that. We should just be expanding coverage from a federal standpoint and not relying on states to do the right thing. Because states are not going to do the right thing unless it's in their own political self-interest, whoever's running the state. And in a lot of cases, that's a Republican governor and a Republican legislature. Most cases. Now, there have, some, there have been some who've sort of relented and expanded Medicaid because it's free money. They, they get it fully funded from the federal government. And the Trump administration tried to scuttle that. But again, it was kind of a Rube Goldberg law. This really complicated piece of legislation was one of the Republicans' complaints about it, of course. But they wanted it to be complicated so that it wouldn't work. (laughs) But again, this is something that, you know, look, when it comes to expanding benefits for, for people in need, people at the ground level, working people, the poor, there's always this this level of complication. They always devolve it to states. They always, you know, set it up so that states can dick around with it. And they they leave latitude for um, state and local government to screw with people, you know, to screw them out of the benefits that they're due. That's the problem we have, right? (laughs) And, you know, I mean... (laughs) I, I raise this point about postal banking because I think that's that's one way, that's one element of a way to sort of back away from this neoliberal model and kind of federalize the idea of pushing aid out to people, different types of aid, in the form of direct payments. Because, hey, look, it turns out you send people money and they're less poor. Imagine that. They're making this monumental discovery that if we give people money, they're less poor. Huh. Who would have thunk it? But there's always this stereotype about people who don't have enough money, who need aid, that they're somehow responsible for their situation. Um, It's the, you know... It's the classic story about the guy sitting on a sofa watching TV, drinking a beer. You know, why should I pay for his health care? Can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And, you know, with rental assistance, in the case of the the recent sort of um, eviction moratorium, the ending of that and then the sort of reestablishment of that, it's people, I'm sure, I've heard it and there's people around you, I'm sure, that have said it. That it's like, you know, geez, you know, these people can't pay their rent. You can't evict people. Oh, but it's your own property. <laughs> really like t- 
talking about throwing people out onto the street. You know, are there bad tenants? Sure there are. There are bad landlords too. There are good people and bad people. People who do good things, people who do bad things. People who make mistakes. Sure. But we're talking about millions of people. Millions of families that need a roof over their heads and are in danger of being thrown out into the street. That's what we were talking about. And thank God for people like Cory Bush, who's willing to stick her neck out, who is willing to do the hard work, who is willing to shame them into actually doing something. The Biden administration didn't want to go there, but they ended up going there, and that was good. She deserves a medal. Very fond of that one. I don't care what the Twitter left says. Everyone's a shill in their book. I'll never understand this desire on the part of certain elements of the left to, you know, just undermine what little foothold we have in in governance. I mean, we finally have a nucleus of a progressive caucus that is made up of truly progressive individuals who agree with us on a broad range of topics. Finally. Finally, we have a fair number of members that are really decent and an even broader sort of penumbra of progressive legis- legislators on the federal level that, that are not half bad, that agree with us across a substantial range of issues. And the first thing that certain elements of the left, the so-called left, mostly on Twitter, the first thing they think of doing is shooting them full of holes. It's just crazy. You can disagree with people, criticize them, that's fine. But tearing them up is a really dumb idea. Anyway, I just think that, I I think they they had a triumph this past week. And I'm, I'm very happy to see it. Let's hope it's the first of many. Because we got a lot of work to do, my friends. You know better than I, I'm sure. In any case, that's all I got. I'd like to hear what you have to say. You can leave a one-minute voice message when you go to anchor.fm slash strange sound to find the means of doing so. You can also contact me at um, the Twitter feed for the show, which is at strange sound pod. That's our handle. You can either tweet at me or personal message me or whatever you like. We also have a Facebook page. Um, if you go to the anchor.fm slash strange sound page, you'll find a link to all of our social media properties, including my moribund <laughs> YouTube channel, which I haven't added to lately. Sorry, haven't had the time. Uh, nobody's looking at it anyway, so. Very low viewership. Dead last, I believe. In any case, if you want to get in touch with me otherwise, uh, go to big-green.net and click on the contact link. You'll find other ways to get in touch with me there. Uh, Be glad to hear from you. Be glad to hear some pushback. I always say this. I still mean it. I really do want to hear from folks out there. If you have anything to say, if you want to have a conversation with me, I'd be glad to have it. Um, Just reach out to me. Let's talk. Let's talk turkey. 
You want to push back on some of the stuff that I'm talking about? Call bullshit on me? Whatever. I'm ready. Let's have it. In any case, hope you stay well out there. (sighs) These are troubling times. Um, So uh, stay safe. Be well. Uh, Get that shot. If you haven't gotten it yet, please get that shot. Wear a mask if you need to. I'm wearing a mask indoors these days, uh, partly mandated. In any case, I it's it's safer. Um, with the various variants going around, be extra careful. This is a very serious disease. Please take good care. We'll see you next time. <laughs>